Exodus chapter 5, though. Let me just remind you what we heard just a moment ago. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. That's a little half-truth there. Um, But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. The Bible actually portrays um, God's intentions for mankind in, in a variety of ways. God intends to save an innumerable number of people because he loves them. His love drives his intentions Uh, God intends to forgive uh, those people through Christ's death on the cross because he is merciful, his his mercy drives him. God intends to create a new heaven and a new earth uh, in which to place those people because he is the God who made everything, who is determined to restore the whole of his creation to uh, um, uh, the state that he wanted it to be. But actually perhaps the most profound and important thing that we can say about God's intentions is that God is driven by his desire for people to know him. Adam and Eve knew God in the Garden of Eden but they lost that privilege privilege. and one of God's um, great uh, driving uh, ambitions throughout the Bible is for people to know him again. It's one of his promises to Abraham that his descendants will, uh, about his descendants he says, I will be their God. In other words, they will know him as God. And that theme continues right through to the end of the book of Revelation where um, finally we see the end of history and God returns to a relationship with his people, a relationship that he once had with Adam and Eve. They will be his people, God himself will be with them and be their God, says Revelation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God's great desire is for people to know him, to worship him, not because he's an egomaniac, but because he knows that when people know him, they are complete. They are filled with joy. They are set free. As they come to worship him for who he is, they find who they really are and are made whole. And that agenda for people to know God is actually very prominent in this book of Exodus. We've seen over the last few weeks, God came down, he revealed his character, uh, in particular his name to Moses, his name Yahweh, I am, the Lord, as uh, the NIV often translates it. He wants Moses and the, uh, uh, the Israelites to know him. He is going to deliver those Israelites from slavery in Egypt so that they will know him. Exodus chapter 6 verse 7 says, I will take you as my own people, I will be your God, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And that continues throughout Exodus. 
But there is a darker side actually to that agenda too. There are plenty of people in this world who not only don't know God, they don't want to know God. And in in Exodus, Pharaoh stands as a great example of that. Moses goes and confronts him and Pharaoh replies, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, I will not let Israel go. He does not know God and he has no intention at all of obeying him. What's God's reaction going to be to that? Well, as the story unfolds, it actually becomes clear that God is determined that even Pharaoh will know who he is. At least nine times, Pharaoh is told that God will deliver Israel so that you will know that I am the Lord or so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth or so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Pharaoh's knowledge of God, though, will come as he's defeated. In the New Testament, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul affirms that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Bible says a great number of people will do that with with utter delight and satisfaction and joy. But the rest, like Pharaoh, will still bow the knee, will still acknowledge that he is Lord. Tragically, they will do it though as those who hate God and are condemned. But on the last day, says the Bible, every knee will bow. The story then, which is going to unfold in front of us in Exodus 5 to to 10, is in many senses a pattern, an anticipation of a story that has been unfolding ever since and will finally complete its unfolding at the end of time. And it is a deeply sobering story, a story that actually we must approach with tears as well as joy. Because it is the story of both liberation and judgment. The story actually unfolds in three phases. The first of those Uh, 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 the first two of those we're going to look at today the third we are going to examine next week the first phase as uh, the story unfolds is found in chapter 5 and uh, in chapter 5 God does nothing things get worse then in chapters 6 to 10 God sends signs again and again and again And finally in chapters 11 and 12, God comes in judgment and deliverance. We'll look at that next week. But first of all though, this morning, we must begin by looking at chapter 5. And there, um, I've entitled it, God, apparently anyway, does nothing. Moses obediently goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh 
pretty predictably really, is not impressed. The scene is surely set for God to do what he's promised he will do back in chapter 3, verse 20. Um, when he said um, right at the beginning of his interactions with Moses I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them after that he will let you go but actually the opposite happens chapter 5 verse 4 the king of Egypt said Moses and Aaron why are you taking the people away from their labour go back to your work Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you're stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Things get harder and God does nothing common pattern actually that we must take very seriously when Christians are first bold enough to stand up for for God very often in the short term it gets harder and frankly it seems as if God is doing nothing this this week the Times has been running a story about Birmingham University Christian Union they've been suspended from the Guild of Students and their bank account has been uh, frozen because uh, mainly the Guild is horrified that membership of the CU is only open to Christians. They can't stand that. Oxford University has a mission coming up soon. Expect people to go out of their way to make life difficult. Those who serve God must expect sometimes to have to make bricks without straw. And as things get harder, God's people start grumbling. The Israelite foremen go to uh, Pharaoh and get a dusty answer, verse 17. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord so they turn on Moses verse 20 they left Pharaoh found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them and said may the Lord look upon you and judge you you have made us the stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us it is always more comfortable actually to do nothing as Christians to keep our heads down Because when Christians raise their head, when the aroma of Christ that we were talking about uh, uh, last week gets going, to some it is a stench. As a church, we've striven to advance God's kingdom in our church life. And we have to be honest that in, in some ways the church life has become more difficult, more edgy, more challenging. We no longer meet in our own building on, on, on Sunday mornings. That adds to the work. New and sometimes difficult people are constantly arriving. That can be a stress. There is some local opposition to the church, church meeting and that makes it difficult. Frankly, it would be easier not to raise our heads above the parapet and frankly, 
for some of us it is very easy to start grumbling. God's people, you see, are not always quite as enlightened as we might like to think. And the toll on leaders in such circumstances can be very, very great. Verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Is it worth it? Is it worth us as a church striving in our evangelism? Is it, was it worth us exhausting ourselves with a mission last autumn? Is it, is it worth setting up midweek doorway meetings? Is it worth actually constantly encouraging one another to, 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 to be involved in speaking about our faith? As uh, um, we were being encouraged just a moment ago reading that, that book, um, thank God it's Monday. Is it worth it? Is it worth Oikyu bothering to have a mission? Is it worth developing our, our building for ministry? Is it worth investing time and trouble in difficult people? Is it worth us considering expanding our staff team? Those things are all actually enormously hard work, enormously exhausting and actually in the short term often cause God's people much more trouble and can leave them emotionally and spiritually exhausted. I can tell you, every pastor, every CU leader, every Christian with a real ambition to see God's kingdom grow has at some time or other found themselves speaking like Moses. Is this why he sent me? Just to stir up trouble for God's people? You have not rescued the people at all. But you see, God has not forgotten his promises. This is what we need to see. God has not forgotten his promises. Expect it to get difficult. Expect there to be grumbling. Expect it to be demoralising sometime. But hear what God says to Moses. Chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. He will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. It may take time, Moses. It may be difficult in the short term. It may be difficult to see me acting, Moses, but I have not forgotten and I am not going to stop. I will do what I say. Usually, frankly, when a university Christian union gets to the end of its mission, the overwhelming feeling is tiredness. And the overwhelming sense is of modest fruit these days. But it's worth it. And always, actually, when churches... Uh, um, really start focusing on the great mission that God has given us. 
It is hard work. But it's worth it. Chapters 7 to 11 then begin to describe God actually getting to work in this situation. It describes those famous plagues which fall on Egypt. The Nile turns to blood. Frogs invade and then gnats and the, did you get them? Flies, livestock die, people get boils, hail falls, locusts eat the crops, finally darkness comes over the land. Actually, the very finally, as we'll see next week, uh, Egypt's firstborn sons are all killed. It is actually possible, if you uh, look through those plagues, to uh, um, uh, explain them, um, up to a point anyway, as natural occurrences. Even the Nile turning to blood, some people have suggested, is perhaps a, a downwash of red silt from the upper Nile region, or possibly, a, a, um, since it kills all the fish, a red algal bloom. Both of them have been recorded in the, uh, uh, in the Nile. Piles of dead frogs of course, would lead to uh, plagues of uh, um, gnats and flies and various things breeding on those uh, putrescent piles. Actually, um, those piles would also predispose to outbreaks of um, uh, anthrax, which kills livestock, but interestingly causes boils in people. Hailstorms, locust invasions, even periods of darkness following volcanic eruptions have occurred. But just because there may be some natural processes involved in this which explain at least some of the plagues doesn't mean God is, is not involved. He is clearly orchestrating them, overseeing them. Each one of them is predicted by Moses and then stopped at Moses' word. This is the hand of God on Egypt. Actually, these plagues in Exodus are more commonly called signs or wonders. They are warnings to the Egyptians which only slowly harden into plagues of judgment. Warnings to a culture and to a king which does not know God. Do you think God might be sending such signs to our culture? Perhaps um, they are events that to a certain degree have natural explanations. But yet which are to warn our world that is heading for judgment. I think he is. Look at uh, some of the characteristics of those signs and uh, uh, maybe you'll see what I mean. The first um, a characteristic of the signs is that they are partially replicated by the Egyptian magicians. When the sign of blood comes, for instance, we read in verse 22, the Egyptian of uh, chapter 7, the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And, uh, uh, and, and then uh, um, as it goes on, it becomes clear that the magicians can't do as much as God can. Chapter 8, verse 19, um, uh, verse 18, for instance, 
Um, when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. The gnats were on men and animals. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Finally, uh, uh, we see the, the, the magicians in chapter 9, verse 11, completely humiliated by this plague of boils. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. There is a real ability, a real sense in our country that our ability to educate young people is slipping away from us. There are many factors in that. The breakdown in the family is, is, is one of the key ones. But I wonder whether it's a warning to us as well. I wonder whether it's a sign as schools struggle more and more with their unruly pupils. And the magicians of our educational world are able to produce a few miracles. But interestingly, over the last few years, it's become increasingly um, uh, obvious that schools with a Christian ethos and a Christian basis again and again outperform the other schools. And uh, when you look at the venom with which uh, propaganda, propaganda war is uh, perpetrated against those uh, Christian academies, I can't help wondering whether at least uh, our educational magicians haven't noticed this is the finger of God. God sends warnings. God allows things to happen sometimes so that he can demonstrate his power. Power which the magicians of this world cannot replicate. Another uh, uh, aspect of these signs which uh, uh, is seen in a number of cases is that the Israelites are not affected. Verses 22 and 23 of chapter 8, for instance. Uh, the plague of flies. On, the, on that day, the day that they're plagued with flies, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where the Israelites live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I am the Lord. Uh, I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. Or then on the plague of uh, livestock, the same thing happens again in, uh, uh, in uh, chapter 9, verse 4. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. Or uh, again in the plague of darkness in chapter 10, verse 23, we see that actually only the land where the Israelites um, were, uh, were living remained light. Some, some of these signs actually engulf Israelites and Egyptians together, but some seem to make a distinction between those who know God and those who don't. There are increasing indications in our world that some of the curses, 
some of the troubles that are coming upon our, our society more and more are actually not shared by Christians. There's a recent survey, for instance, that showed that despite uh, evangelical Christians giving nine times the national average in charitable giving and only having incomes which were on average about 10% more than average, those Christians nevertheless had three times the amount of savings and one-sixth the amount of personal debt. Or uh, surveys have shown that educationally the children from evangelical households actually do better. People with, with a real faith score higher for happiness. They are healthier and so on and so on and so on. And of course there are natural mechanisms which lead to those differences. But underneath it there is a reality that God loves to bless those who love him. And he wants the world to see that. He wants the world to be warned that their behaviour is leading to destruction. Another characteristic of these um, signs is uh, an encouraging one. Some Egyptians heed them when the plague of hail is predicted, for instance, in chapter 9, verse 20, those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Perhaps they themselves went inside, I'm not sure. But they took it seriously, some. Before the plague of locusts, the officials then plead with Pharaoh. Chapter 10, verse 7, the Pharaoh's officials said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realise that Egypt is ruined? And in chapter 12, beyond the limits of our study today, when the Israelites finally do leave Egypt, in verse 38 we find many other people went up with them. Many people in Egypt saw the significance of these signs, heeded the word of God and even followed the God of Israel. And many people in, in, in today's world are heeding God's warnings to our world. Often it is because some crisis has hit their life. Like the officials, they believe the word of God like those many other people they are prepared to follow. Many do heed. But the final characteristic um, of these plagues is also very important. Pharaoh does not heed. He begins our stories story absolutely imperious and confident. I will not let you go, he says. Why should I? When the frogs come, for a moment, Pharaoh seems to be coming to his senses. Chapter 8, verse 8. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord that the, uh, uh, to take the frogs away from me and my people and I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But he doesn't keep his word. Then in chapter 8, verse 25, he tries to negotiate. Um, uh, 
verse 25, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But you don't negotiate with God. God has been quite clear they are to leave the land. God will not negotiate. At times, Pharaoh even seems to repent. Chapter 10, verse 16, for instance. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from you. But he hasn't repented. At the end of the whole story, he's still desperately trying to negotiate with God who demands surrender, not negotiation. 10 verse 24 Pharaoh summoned Moses and said go worship, your, worship the Lord even your women and children may go with you only leave your flocks and herds behind but Moses said you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God our livestock too must go with us not a hoof must be left behind and Pharaoh will not accept that As the story progresses, it actually describes what is happening in Pharaoh in terms of his heart again and again. At the beginning of the story, it says on on, on more than one occasion, Pharaoh's heart was hard. That was its natural state. But as the story develops, actually Pharaoh... Um, then on his own, by his own volition, hardens his heart. Chapter 8, verse 32, uh, for instance. This time Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. And finally, as the story progresses, another theme begins to appear. It is not now Pharaoh hardening his own heart. It is God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 10, verse 20. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. Those signs for Pharaoh have slowly changed from warnings and opportunities for repentance to judgments. Judgments which simply confirm the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And it happens still. I've seen enough um, false protestations of repentance, enough uh, desperate negotiations with God to be uh, sadly assured that there are plenty of modern day Pharaohs. And it is heartbreaking to deal with them. And really tough. Because they will ask for prayer and even pray themselves. They will seem to be uh, um, uh, coming towards obedience. 
But pray for me turns into I will not. And I will if turns into I will not. And slowly over time you get the feeling that those repeated refusals have gone beyond the conscious decision. Beyond the point where the person hardens their own hearts. Now it seems to be so settled in their personality that they have no control over it. The Bible warns that that happens. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it is difficult to express the sadness of that. These are people who come along to church very often. People who seem open receptive. But over years and years, slowly their heart becomes irrevocably sclerosed. But God has not been defeated. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess those signs which, which have patiently and repeatedly been set before the Egyptians have caused some to change. Even if others like Pharaoh will bow in misery and hatred there are those who will bow and confess with unutterable joy alongside those Israelites because they realised who God was, they realised how powerful he was, they realised that they needed to come to terms with him. And that is what is happening today. As sign upon sign comes upon our land, Signs which increasingly show cannot be replicated by others. Because there is something that God does in the human heart which is, which is unreproducible. Signs which increasingly demonstrate to our world But it makes a difference to be a Christian. But some of those curses can be escaped to be, be, by being a Christian. Signs which sadly harden some whilst they bring salvation to others. And God's people stand up to be counted. First thing we need to know is life will get more difficult. Keep going. Second thing we need to know is that God will send signs. He does. And some will respond. All that remains is judgment and salvation. Then next week.